real hog. <laughs> Heroes by David Bowie. One of my all-time favorite songs. Great song. Oh. Perks of Being a Wallflower. The Tunnel Song. Yeah, it was in that movie. That's a great movie. How you Excellent. doing, Eric? Fantastic, man. The snow's melting, although it is sleeting right now, but that's just a spring thing in New Hampshire. We progressed down from piles of snow to some sleet, uh, you know, a bunch of suicides, and then... Uh, Warm weather. And the corpses are found in the thaw from yeah. the snow. But I'm doing great, man. It's uh, Wednesday. I got the day off tomorrow. Um, feeling good about things. How you doing there, Mike? I'm doing well. And I'm one of your hosts, Mike Jackman. Always your other host, <laughs> Eric Jackman, but you know that. And then and our main man mm-hmm. on the mic to the south. Aaron LaFond. Mr. Aaron LaFond, producer, engineer... Editor, editor, art director, art director, muse, muse, fluffer, uh, Patsy. Yep, Lee Harvey Oswald, Patsy. Everything. Oh boy, how you doing, Aaron? Uh, good enough, I would say. Yeah, yeah, good enough. When, when happy, I... happy to be here. Fuck yeah, oh, that's good. I'm glad, oh, we're glad you're happy. To glad be to here. have you here, man. One of my old teachers. Fucking love uh, you, man. When I, I would see one of my old teachers in the hallway, I'd be like, "How are you today?" He would just be like, "Tolerable." Yeah, I, well, it's you know, it's tough coming up with because you know I have to answer that question a million times a day, so yeah, it's tough coming up. Yeah, exactly. So it's very banal. I know. Yeah. I, I also just like if someone asks you how you doing, I just go, "Yep." You know, what if you took <laughs> someone um, by surprise and said, "You know, how you doing? What's going on?" And you just said, "Well, I just took a huge shit, so I'm feeling great." Right, right. And I wiped, and I got most of it, yep. so I'm doing really well. How are you? Just make them uncomfortable. <laughs> That's my success story for the day. Well, in my opinion, the biggest news item this week is that the X-Files is coming back. Oh, yeah. Are you excited about that? You know, it's a limited thing. It's going to be, what, five or six episodes? Six-episode run. That's probably smart. Yeah. I mean, they should probably do that alien orgy that Duchovny always wanted to do. Scully. Scully, I'm addicted to alien sex. Can you take the probe out of my ass? I was hoping Aaron would have. The yeah, music no, button. I'll put it in. Uh, yeah, I'll can... put it in post. Okay, as, I mean, as we say, everything's a fucking rehash now. I mean, you know, did Duchovny and Gillian Anderson need money that bad, or are they just bored? I mean, I don't know. I, I think people are, are hungry for, in my opinion, the uh, most popular show of the 1990s, <laughs> before The Sopranos. Yeah, well, am Seinfeld. I wrong in my assessment? 
Yeah. Seinfeld was absolutely the most popular yeah. show of the 1990s. I don't know. We're not Seinfeld fans. I have to agree with Aaron. It, it Dude, was. X-Files was a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, for fucking dudes who lived in their mom's basement. <laughs> I don't know, Seinfeld man. had much broader appeal than X-Files. Yeah. Ah, really? Fuck yeah. You're going to tell me right now that Seinfeld was, was more potent and more popular and had more to do with pop culture than X-Files. Yeah, yeah. Definitely more potent. Okay, you know what? I, you know what? I have to give you guys this. It was quoted more. You know, more people yeah. who might not be in X-Files. We're going to tell you, parrot Seinfeld to you. Not to take away from X-Files. X-Files is great. My favorite episode was the one where... Um, you find out Mulder's old man was the JFK shooter. Cigarette smoking man. Cigarette confessions of cigarette smoking man. That was Mulder's father. Right? Oh, so he's not the JFK shooter. but uh, he, he may have been. Okay. But he was involved. He knew about it. He knew about everything. I mean, ultimately, it was about this big alien conspiracy, right? Under, like, 11, the, the big 11 underground talking about uh, the alien arrival, or maybe the aliens have already arrived. Wow. And they're here among us. Ancient aliens. And that, that was the real uh, plot line of the whole original series, was this whole UFO issue. Now they're going to talk about fucking illegal aliens from Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I'm excited about that. I remember watching that as a kid and uh, being scared by it. And uh, sometimes they had the Monster of the Week episode, which was kind of stupid. They did. There were, let's be honest, uh, nine seasons. There was a few filler episodes. Same amount of seasons as Seinfeld. Ah, very good. But point you didn't there. know that. However, call, David Duchovny was not around for the last season and a half, two seasons. He was in rehab for sex addiction. Oh, really? He was so that, Californicating. That's, so that's like a Kramer, <laughs> like left halfway through the. Yeah. yeah so that doesn't really. They replaced him with Robert Patrick, which was certainly noble, but not a, not an end of anything. And uh, mm-hmm. Skinner there, that the uh, Mitch Pileggi. Mitch Pileggi's got to get rid of all that Aryan ink from Sons of Anarchy if he's going to come back. I think he's going to come. I think there's incentive for him to come back. I heard uh, he was definitely coming back. David Duchovny is coming back as Mulder. Gillian Anderson will be back as Scully. As a hot redhead. And Chris Carter is also involved, helming it. So Excellent. I think you have those three ingredients. You can possibly redeem that horrible 2008 movie, X-Files, I want to believe. I want to to believe that this movie sucks. I want to believe they could hire a better (laughs) scriptwriter. Did you see that? No. There's certainly no lack of uh, topical um, stuff for them to talk about, though. That's happened since the X-Files ended. What year did that show end? 2002. I mean, that's before Inconvenient Truth. They could do a whole thread about global warming. Right. No, that's the next big... Yeah, that's a government thing. Weather modification, weaponizing space. We have Al Gore in a hot weather balloon releasing gas, <laughs> melting the polar ice caps with his flatulence. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, well, I'm excited cool. about that. I'm looking forward to it. So that's going to begin uh, filming this summer. Cool. Um, also, in a limited run, Twin Peaks is coming back. I saw that. Yeah. I'm really excited about mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. I was a huge Twin Peaks. I've fan. never. I've sat. I've sat down twice to watch that series, and I'm a huge David Lynch fan. And I never get through the second season. I don't. Know know why I, it's a good show i like it. it's pretty well, consistent but i never get to the end i'll tell you watched why it. david lynch was not part of the second season really he, he was he took off probably halfway through the first season no kidding and you know what it was never really intended to reveal who killed laura palmer see, that was he, never supposed to be revealed. and i would have been fine with that but i could see how that would piss a lot of people off oh and anybody who's watching what was it on nbc or abc they wanted you know they're they watching because they wanted to find out eventually and it was david lynch's first like mainstream kind of exposure like he'd never done a project that big really i mean blue velvet was successful but he wasn't making it for a mass audience right know? and dune basically flopped even though it's yeah it's since yeah. been regarded as a cult classic yeah even though uh jodorowsky should have directed that right right um but uh, twin peaks is coming back also evil dead is coming back as mm-hmm. a tv series with the original star bruce campbell as ash who's gonna play ronald reagan on season two of uh is that show fargo 
Fargo. Really? Or some? Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, maybe, they did. They maybe did not a, Fargo. Uh, Is yeah, it I don't, on FX? Fargo. Some show. Uh, you know, Google it, folks. <laughs> he's going to play Ronald Reagan. Bruce Campbell's great. I think. I don't think he's gotten his due. I think. Uh, you know, Sam Raimi's put him in a lot of his projects. They've certainly been friends uh, going back to the '70s. And um, oh, man, Bubba Hotep. Bubba Hotep was, was great. A, flick. It was actually really good. Some kind uh, of Bubba Hotep. Army of Darkness, also great. Hell yeah. And the Evil Dead remake. You know, I actually enjoyed that. As someone who's a big fan of uh, horror films. Uh, a bit of a purist when it comes to a lot of them. I have to say, I did enjoy the Evil Dead remake. And then he's in that show about the former covert uh, agent, um, Burn Notice. Notice. Yeah. Which is a good, uh, leads me to who our special guest tonight is that uh, we have calling in from uh, Virginia at an undisclosed location. Uh, former CIA officer John Karakow, uh, Kiriaku, excuse me, who was uh, in prison for 30 months for blowing the whistle on waterboarding and torture. We'll be calling into the show, so very excited about that. Very excited to interview him and get his thoughts on things and hear his story and talk a little bit about his background. He was just released last month from his 30-year sentence, correct? In early February? Yeah, he got out uh, February 3rd. So what's he been doing? Well, he's on house arrest, so he can't. He can only leave his house if he's going to a job uh, to work, um, a medical emergency, the hospital, the doctors. Or anything, he, basically it's got to be cleared or be pre-approved by, you know, the powers that be. For him to leave. We'll talk to him. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get some we'll more information from him. We'll if I were on house arrest, I would Ugh. jerk off so much. Well, yeah, I mean, well, he, you know, he's married. He's not a bachelor, He's Aaron. married with five kids, so he's not like well, fucking, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know. Well, yeah, you know, they got a, kids got to go to school, you know. Yeah, well, we'll talk to him about house arrest. I don't know if we're going to get that covert with <laughs> yeah, him. That's kinda, but, uh, yeah, that's yeah, can little, I ask it, that? It's, it's going to be very interesting. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to interview him. Yeah, a very interesting guy. Um, also in the headlines this week, the first official big name, big fish presidential candidate announcement was Ted Cruz. Yeah. A first-term senator from, where is he from, Eric? Texas? Texas. From Texas. Announced well, Canada, technically. Well, I was gonna, I was going to get to that after, but we'll yeah okay. So uh, Ted Cruz has announced that he's running for president. Uh, the first kind of big name out there wanted to get ahead of everyone else, and he announced it at Liberty University, and a mandatory student mandatory like meeting, a huge they, rally. Yeah, basically, it's like it's like when you were in high school and you had to go to community, community time. Community time, we had at Conan, or you had yeah. to go to some pep rally. You know, yeah. you had to be. You there. had to go. No, we're, yeah, you, you couldn't. So you had a, so you had a captive audience. Like we did when we were in student council. Right. So Ted Cruz is down there at Liberty University, who he's helped out their sports teams, I guess. And oh, yeah. has helped the, the, the school a lot. He hasn't helped them like Sandusky, has he? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, we'll see. You never know. But he was down there doing this rally, announcing his run for president. And uh, I think it's just a flash in the pan. It's an early thing. He's not someone that you should even consider... You know, a, a candidate who's going to go anywhere because this is a guy who's going to pander to the far right Very far during the right. primary. Oh, well, I made the, the evangelicals. He's, he's making Santorum look liberal. Like he makes Santorum look like a Kennedy. <laughs> you know, you know he's going to be pandering to the Tea Party voters, the neocon voters, yeah, xenophobes, um, xenophobes, homophobes, gun nuts, uh, all the phobes, abortion, uh, mad dogs. Right. So all those people, those great great Americans that we have. So when it comes down to it, he's going to throw out some red meat that they're going to like during the primary. But I think in a general election, I don't see a guy like that going very far. Well, yeah. When you have names like Huckabee and Santorum and Ben Carson, and then you throw Ted Cruz, I mean that's cr- that's a crowded sphere for that 
portion for that niche of the Republican of the GOP. Party. Yeah, for right. that for that uh, you know that corner of the of the GOP, and I just I don't see the guy going anywhere because become come uh, November of 2016, you're the nominee. You have to get. 51% of the vote. Of the, yeah, right, exactly. And so, he lost my vote uh, when he said that after the 9-11 attacks, he stopped listening to rock and roll music. Oh, man. Listening to country music only. The hell is that all about? Who did the concert for New York? Uh, was that Alan Jackson? That was a bunch of rock musicians, actually. Oh, oh. I, yeah, didn't remember? Alan Jackson do that whole, like, a 9-11 album after 9-11? I, I believe he did. Yeah. Probably. I believe he did. But who, who did the album, The Rising? Bruce Springsteen. When New Yorkers and people from New Jersey who were affected by the attacks were just like... We need you, Bruce. Bruce Springsteen, a rock musician. Like I said, concert, concert for New York City. So Paul McCartney. Organized by Paul McCartney. Attended by the Who. And all the New York the City Rolling firefighters. Stones, Billy Joel. Right, the firefighters the were firefighters there. The first were responders there. were there, rocking out, loving bon it. Bon Jovi was there, kicking ass. So this for Ted Elton Cruz, John was there, gaining the place up. For Ted Cruz to come out and say that he stopped listening to rock and roll music after 9-11 is just... I mean, come on. Well, he I, just lost I can't a big part yeah. of the vote right there. I can't ever support just someone. It's a weird thing to say. Like, he, I, I don't even, who's he pandering to? Like the, like the, the, culture, the, culture shit and culture warrior, you know? Yeah. Rock He's, and roll is the devil's music. Maybe he'll get Kenny Chesney or uh, what's his face? Garth Brooks to play his inauguration. <laughs> well, all the genres are so blended now anyway. Yeah. Like like country is there's basically country rap rock. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's country rap. Well, there's bro country too, right, Mike? There's bro country, which I despise. And then there's Sturgill Simpson. Oh, are, you, are, you, are you talking about hip hop? Hip hop? Yeah, that's what they call it. Hip hop. I never heard that one. Interesting. Yeah, yep. it's terrible. Eric, you mentioned Sturgill, <laughs> Sturgill Simpson. Uh, awesome. Awesome. Oh, hell yeah, I mean, man. he's kind of going back to the old school type thing when country was really good. He's bringing it back. And it had atmosphere and it had something to say and there was real yearning. And it wasn't just straight up country. It mixed no. other elements such as rock and roll, pop, right. um, you know, maybe some orchestral arrangements. And uh, we talked a lot about Sturgill Simpson in our last episode. What a voice. When we interviewed Clive Farrington from When in Rome, right. which was a lot of fun. So tonight's interview is going to be a little bit different from that. But uh, yeah, Ted Cruz, you know. Check him out. I mean, we'll, we'll try and get an interview with him. Um, you know, props for running. Freshman senator from Texas. Elected in, uh, I think it was 2013. Fairly recently. Yeah, he's so... He his, aligned himself with a lot of the far-right, you know, groups. Oh, yeah. Affiliated with uh, with his party. Yeah. And uh, didn't campaign for a lot of the mainstream Republican people. No. And this is something that Rand Paul did do. And, and you can understand why Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, who's probably going to be announcing in early April his run for the presidency. Right. Well, you saw when Rand Paul won that primary in 2012, uh, Mitch McConnell changed his tune quick. Yeah, they're bros. I they're think they're bros now. And McConnell said, "I will, I will support Rand Paul for president." So that that you know, that's pretty psych having him in your corner. The thing about Rand Paul, though, man, I I, re I liked him a couple years ago, and I was ready to get on board with him. But you know, his whole thing with the foreign policy and signing oh, that pandering. letter, signing that letter to, yeah, Iran, to Iran about yeah. basically you know taking diplomacy off the table and well, that and wiping your ass with the office of the presidency. You know, no matter which who which guy is occupying sixteen hundred Pennsylvania, it's still the office of the president. Yeah, I mean, and his attitude and his, you know, I, I saw a great uh, quote about Rand Paul saying that he was an, he's an optometrist who's become an egomaniac. Mm. He's an eye doctor who became, an, uh, you know, an egomaniac. Well, his old man should straighten him out. Well, we, we got to talk. Right? I might have to bend the knee and give you a spanking. Before you get out there, we, we need to talk because you're going to embarrass the Paul brand. And, you know, that's the thing. The Ron Paul donors who were there in 2012... 
and were there in 2008, but more so the second time around, especially when he placed second in New Hampshire with, I think, 21, 22% of yeah. the vote. That's going to be his fundraising base Oh yeah, for, for Rand Paul for 2016. Oh, yeah, they're already so there. So he'd be foolish to ignore that. And unfortunately for him, there's a lot of libertarians out there who do have that weird money. They do. And, and they're not necessarily going to support him because they don't, you know, according to them, a lot of their talking points are not being espoused by Rand Paul. No, they're not. And he's become too Republican, too mainstream, yeah. too much of a politician. And uh, that's kind of interesting to see that play out. And my boy Gary Johnson, um, who will run again as a libertarian, who was a nominee in 12, said Rand Paul is no real libertarian, you know. And since Gary's embraced the Libertarian Party, um, he claimed he's going to run more of a Bullworth kind of campaign in 2016. What, so he wants people, to, someone to take a shot at him? Uh, <laughs> not, not, well, more unhinged, more, more honest. Yeah, more, yeah, just less more, careful. Yeah, less careful, less uh, reserved. Well, I remember when we were sitting down at Harlow's Pub in Peterborough, New Hampshire, with Governor Gary Johnson. Uh, he was a former two-term governor from New Mexico who basically ran the state like a business. Yeah. We were sitting down, eat, you know, having dinner with him, and we were all excited about him being in the Republican debates and being in the election. And yeah. I said, you know, Gary, you got, you got, you got to go after Mitt Romney. you got to go for the jugular. Oh, yeah. you got to come out swinging. Oh, you were fired up. Yeah, I was, you know, and he was like, no, Mike, we're, we're, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to run on our ideas. We're going to light up a big J and go climb Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> and at the at the time, uh, he was one of the highest elected you know, officials to come out in favor of uh, legalization. When he did, at least he, admitting. Second term of governor, yeah. Because what it, happened to him? He was in a hang gliding accident? He was in a paragliding accident and broke like 30 bones or something in his back. And um, to deal with the pain, he smoked pot. That was 2005 to 2008. And he's very public about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll tell you about it. So... You know, what will probably ultimately end up happening, I'm going to hate the Republican nominee, I'm going to hate the Democratic nominee, and there will be Gary Johnson uh, on the ballot in 48, 49, or maybe 50 states if the Libertarians can really get their act together this time around, and, and I will vote for Gary Johnson again. But it's interesting, though, you're kind of talking about this uh, Democrat from Virginia, Senate, former Senator Jim Webb. Well, I'm flirting you with You really Jim, like him. I'm flirting with Jim Webb for president because, um, as I mentioned about Ted Cruz lacking that general election appeal... Jim Webb has some serious general election appeal. This is a guy who could appeal to your working class dudes who work construction jobs, your guys in the military, you know, your security moms, your soccer moms, because this guy was uh, in the military. He was secretary of the Navy. Was he a Marine or in the Army? He's a Marine. He's a Marine. Fought in uh, Vietnam, you know, um... Just overall, really a fucking badass guy. Also went back to some danger zones in the 80s as a journalist, which I find yeah, he was to be over really... Yeah, over in Beirut. That's really interesting. Lebanon. Yeah. So he was a... You know, he, he never did one thing for it for too long. Well, is he He's like not to a say, career politician. No, as he liked to say, he would dip into politics and government and then get out and go back to the private sector. He's an author, uh, New York Times bestselling author, journalist, sole proprietor... You know, senator, U.S. senator. He beat George Allen there in '06. That was a, that's a great story. Um, and you know, overall, I just I, I like the guy. I have a, you know, obviously, I have a pretty serious bullshit meter when it comes to these politicians. Having lived in New Hampshire now for what uh, how many primaries since 2000? Yeah, every so election. 2000, 04, 08, 12, and now 16. Right. That's five New Hampshire primaries we're veterans of. Right. That we've been. So you got a pretty good eye for bullshit. Even in middle school, we were we were paying attention to oh, pre yeah. presidential politics. Oh, if yeah. you can believe that, guys. So. Yeah, and you know, and um, 
I, I, you know, speaking for myself uh, as Michael Jackman, I consider myself an independent. I don't like party labels. I've, you know, I think I've mentioned this before. I have voted for Democrats. I voted for Republicans. Uh, I voted for Green Party, Libertarian. Yeah, libertarians. Uh, I like someone who's basically going to speak what's on their mind and speak their truth and, yeah. and well, not pander to, to all the, you know, moneyed and corporate interests. Yeah, but that, that factors into presidential of election, course. of course. And when, I, when, you know, when I listen to Jim Webb, I hear a guy that is not going to run for president for his health to benefit his career. He's already, he's he already want, done it all. He doesn't even want to do it. He's 69 years old. But in my opinion, this is a guy, you know, who could be commander in chief of our armed forces. You know, he's served in the military. He's, he's been in a war zone. He's had his friends die. You know, he's had to take life. He understands how serious it is committing troops to a hot spot. So I don't think he's a guy who's just going to nonchalant start these wars and keep wars going. And he's going to want to have a strategy. And he was very vocally opposed to Iraq in, you know, early on. And his son served, I believe, in the Iraq his war. His son, James Jr., served in Iraq and was in, um, was it Ramadi? Or one, one of those areas that was really hot for a while. So, you know, he's legit. So, you know, I urge everybody to check out Jim Webb. Hillary is, uh, Queen Hillary thinks she has it in the bag. But it's not an anointment. Get her up on stage with Jim Webb, man. You know, if sparks could fly, dude. Well, that's the thing that gets me, you know, whether you like Hillary or don't like Hillary. I, I hate the way this is looking like an anointment mm. on the Democratic side. Like it's an all but decided. Because what happened she can... to being a democracy, Aaron? Well, the, the the appeal to Hillary, I think, is you kind of get two presidents in one. You know what I mean? Cause, and and Bill, Clinton, Bill Clinton is so well-liked oh, now. He like, is, he bounced man. back so oh. well. Yeah, he did. No, he really... He's Everyone loves him. Everyone loves yeah. Bill Clinton. Short memory. So, eh, Well, everyone, too, we were talking about Twin Peaks and... Uh, X-Files, we have 90s nostalgia. That's true. Maybe voters have 90s nostalgia, too. That's true. Yeah. They want it back in the White House. You know, but and she's definitely going to be able to raise the most money. There's no doubt about it. And I think one oh, of the yeah. issues Jim Webb is facing in determining whether or not he's going to run for president is can he raise a lot of money to be viable? Okay. Well, that's great. Well, let's uh, pause for a break. Uh, we got our interview with uh, former CIA officer... John Kiriakou coming up. Don't go anywhere. This is Jackman Radio. Thank you for listening to Jackman Radio, and we are back with a very exciting interview. I'm so excited to have this gentleman on my show. Mr. John Kariaku is a former CIA analyst and case officer, former senior investigator for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and former counterterrorism consultant for, N for excuse me, ABC News and a blogger for the Huffington Post. He was the first U.S. government official to confirm in 2007, December, that waterboarding was used to interrogate Al-Qaeda prisoners, which he described as torture. John, thank you so much for joining me. How you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Doing great, thanks. Great. And um, 
I should also mention that John spent 30 months in prison at uh, Laredo, Pennsylvania for um, pleading guilty to violating the Intelligence Identities Protection Act um, by disclosing the name of a covert CIA officer to a reporter. Of course, the reporter never publicized the name. It was never used. But nonetheless, John spent the time in prison. John, how does it feel to be home? Oh, man, there's no comparison at all to, uh, to prison. Even though I'm under house arrest and I'm not allowed to leave the house, anything is better than prison. Yeah, it sounds sounds pretty rough. And I know that um, since being out, you've talked about prison reform, and it's kind of um, you know, a cause you've taken up. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I, you know, I never had any idea uh, what went on inside America's prisons until I was inside America's prisons. Right. And um, the, the waste, fraud, abuse, corruption, violence, all on the part of prison staff, is something that needs to stop. And, and that's just at the, at the you know, micro level. At the macro level, we spend $7 billion a year um, incarcerating Americans. Wow. And, uh, and we've turned it into a for-profit industry that is just unparalleled in, in practically any other, any other country in the world. One statistic, I'm not going to throw a lot of statistics at you tonight, but one statistic that I think is very telling is that the United States has 5% of the world's population, mm-hmm. but we have 25% of the world's prison population. Wow. Most of that population is African-American. Right. For the very simple reason that our entire judicial system is racist at its core. And what I mean by that is that, for example, um, if you uh, are convicted of a crime involving crack cocaine, your sentence is going to be up to 10 times longer than if you had been convicted of a crime involving powdered cocaine. Wow. The reason being that powdered cocaine is a white man's drug. Oh, and yeah. crack cocaine is a black man's drug. <laughs> and we incarcerate black men in this country. Yeah, cocaine, powdered cocaine, that's so Wall Street. Oh, totally. And, and, totally Wall Street. And crack cocaine <laughs> is so Watts. What you a, know? Exactly. What about the drugs that Barry Seal was flying in back in the 80s? <laughs> I think that was all powder cocaine. <laughs> probably, yeah, Bill Clinton did his fair share of it. <laughs> and and and, and um, John, when you were in prison, I mean, did word word get around that we got this CIA guy who's in here? He's he's a badass. He he led raids in Pakistan. You know, you probably shouldn't mess with him. You know, he was he was trained at the farm. I mean, how did you find day to day going in prison? I mean, did people know that you you were a former CIA bad boy? Yeah, in fact, the New York Times. Uh, on the Sunday before I arrived in prison, ran a front-page uh, story about me. Wow. And, uh, and I was really worried about this. I, I didn't know how I was going to be received in prison, and I was prepared to, you know, go to the mat if I had to to protect myself. Of course. You know, my only experience with prison had been watching, you know, Locked Up Abroad on A&E or watching, you prison know, break. whatever it's called on MSNBC that they run at night. So I, I had never seen the inside of a prison before. But then on my first day there, um, Louis Farrakhan made a statement saying that I was a hero of Muslim human rights. And so really? two Nation of Islam guys walked into my cell. I had only been there for a couple of hours. Wow. And I thought, oh, man, now somebody's going to you know, spill blood. So I, I remember clenching my fist. And one of these guys, and I should preface this by saying, in prison, the Nation of Islam isn't really a religion so much as it's a gang. Yeah. So these guys walk into my cell, and one of them says, 
yo, Reverend Paracon says uh, that you're okay, so you're okay with us. You're not going to have any problems with us. Wow, and, and, and did those guys account for a large population of the prison? Um, yes and no. I mean, there are an awful lot of Muslims in prison. They tend to be prison converts. And right. And so they're always adding to their numbers. Like, like Mike Tyson. Tyson. Say that again? Like Mike Tyson. Yeah, exactly. And, and O.J. Simpson, from what I hear. Yeah. So um, that was... That was Nation of Islam. Four of my original cellmates were members of Latin drug gangs. Okay. MS-13, Nostenos, Zetas, and Pisces. And because we got along, they told their shot callers, the, the, the leaders of each faction, that I was okay. So, the, so the, the Hispanics left me alone. And then also on my first day, two Aryan Brotherhood guys came up to me. And all they wanted to know was, uh, was I a child molester? Was I, uh, was I gay? Or um, was I a rat? Wow. And the answer to all three was no. And so they invited me to sit at their table in the cafeteria, which was a big deal. That's like some Sons of Energy shit. I sat with Aryans for my first year there. Wow. And then I made such good friends among the Italians that um, the Italians said, what are you sitting with those retards for? Why don't you sit with us? Jeez. So I sat with, uh, I sat with the Italians the rest of my prison time. Well, and when you... I say Italians, I mean... The actual boss of the Gambino family. Oh, yeah. The underboss of the Banano family. Goodfellas. The real Goodfellas. Yeah. The, the capo who ran the, the Newark waterfront for the Genovese. I'm talking about serious Italian. The guy who collected the garbage. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you, you could have said to the big drug dealers, you could have been like, look, I come from the CIA, man. We're, the, we're bigger drug dealers than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about Barry Seal and Iran Contra and Gary Webb and <laughs> all that shit. <laughs> That's right. Not 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 that you were a drug dealer, John, but uh, no, the, the agency God. certainly has dabbled in drug dealing. There's no denying that. <laughs> that seems to be where the evidence points. So wow! So you did your thirty months, man. You went it went without incident, pretty much. You made friends. People kind of knew who you were, and um, you got out all right. Yeah, you know, it turned out to be more boring um, than anything else. Well, that's it's, good. It's the Groundhog Day. Every yeah. single day is the same as every single other day. Right. And, and were you in prison? Did you get any visitors from the media or anybody coming in to support you or just kind of wanting to hear your story or were you not allowed to talk to anybody? You know what? I, I put my foot down and I demanded to have access to the press, which caused me no end of grief, but at the same time caused them no end of grief. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. Well, good. So, um, so... I ended up doing every uh, press request that was made, but most of the time, reporters didn't come to the prison. They only actually came to the prison twice. Everything else was done over the phone. I did CNN and MSNBC and NPR and all kinds of different things. Um, but otherwise, I had so many visitors, we were only allowed to have four visits a month, and I didn't go a single month in the entire time that I was in prison that... I didn't have four visitors. Wow. So it was nice. That's I awesome. I was not forgotten. On top of that, I received more than 7,000 letters, almost 8,000 letters from about 700 different people. Uh, and I answered every single one of them. Well, I'm sure that kept you busy and that kept your head in the game because it did. I can imagine the monotony of prison could make a man go nuts. Oh, yeah. And, and, and people do go nuts. You see it all the time. Yeah. Um, 
Wow, well, that's 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 fascinating. So I just I want to get a little a little bit more into your background. I mean, for people who don't know who you are, um, I understand you were recruited in the agency by a professor in grad school who had been a senior official. Yes, yeah, I had a professor in grad school who was um, acting as what used to be called a spotter. Yeah, uh, the CIA back in the day used to uh, put senior officers in positions in universities all around the country, and their job was to look for for graduate students who they thought would be a good fit with the agency and with agency culture. And so um, my professor, who was actually my advisor in grad school, uh, spotted me and thought I'd be a good fit. And I went through the testing, and next thing I knew, I was in. Now, you can't do that anymore. It's it's not romantic like that anymore. No. Now you just go to the website and click on the button that says apply now. Yeah, you but will. back then, it really was an old boy network. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Uh, CIA is a lot more diverse now in its hiring practices, and um, yes. you can have people in there who have tattoos, maybe who have something spotty on their record, um, yes. but but they'll still get you in. That's true. It's not like That's Alan true. Dulles anymore. I'm sorry, say it again. It's not like Alan Dulles anymore. No, no, nothing like Alan Dulles anymore. You know, Alan Dulles really, you know, and even his predecessors, they would recruit. They're buddies from college. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and so everybody was from Yale and Princeton and Harvard. Right. Right. Why? Very much a, a, a bunch of of East Coast elites. Elites. Romans. Uh, and then that started changing uh, in the early '60s when people like Gustav Mercatus, who oh, who yeah. uh, was Charlie sort of Wilson. memorialized in the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Oh, Philip Seymour uh, Hoffman was so great in that role, man. Oh, I'll tell you what, Gus was my mentor. He was like a father to me. Really? Philip Seymour Hoffman really played him exactly the way he was, except wow. Gus' mouth was much filthier than Philip I was going to say, that scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman's in there and, and Langley, and he's, he gets the hammer and smashes that guy's mirror. I mean, is, yeah. that, is that any indication of what he was like? Oh, Gus was the meanest, toughest guy I've ever known in my life. So he was a, he was a bad dude. He was, and he wasn't afraid of anybody. And and so that makes sense because um, you spent some time in Greece uh, in the agency, correct? I did. I spent two years in Greece. And I know we can't get into too many specifics, obviously, but um, while you were there, you were kind of tasked with feeling out people who might be sympathetic to the West and um, who who uh, you know might be anti-communist or kind of you know able to help us out. Mm-hmm. I was um, first. Let me say that that my my Athens uh, time was the highlight of my agency career. I, I had never so enjoyed a job as much as I enjoyed my job in Athens. Most Americans didn't know at the time, and still don't, that Athens was so dangerous in the 80s and 90s that we spent more money protecting our embassy and our installations in, uh, in Greece than we spent in Lebanon. Uh, every, every Middle Eastern and European terrorist group had a presence in Athens. And the unofficial rule was that the Greek government wouldn't bother you if you didn't kill Greeks. Well, that's good. So, um, <laughs> so that, that was the deal. And as a result, you had Abu Nidal and Carlos the Jackal and the PSLP, the PSLPGC, the DSLP, the Red Brigades, and then there were domestic groups that, that you know killed Americans, including the CIA station chief and two defense attaches, that was Revolutionary Organization 17 November and Popular Revolutionary Struggle, and then there are a dozen other smaller groups that were active in Greece at the 
time. Yeah, and, and word has it you were you were nearly killed by leftists in Greece. Yeah, I, I yeah, that was a tough time for me. So, the, um, so it was. Instead it was, of killing me, they killed my my neighbor uh, Stephen Saunders, who was the British defense attaché. Wow. And then what 17 November would do after each assassination was they would drop a copy of their manifesto in a in a garbage dumpster and then call one of the leftist newspapers to tell them where to find it. So after they killed Steve, uh, they dropped their manifesto, and it was found and published, and it said, We saw the big spy, mm. but we knew that he was armed, and he was in an armored car. And so we decided to carry out the revolutionary sentence on the war criminal Saunders. Jeez. Well, Steve Saunders and I, our, our houses... Um, our yards abutted each other. Wow. And all I could think, because I was so careful about not being followed, about about taking a different route to work and back mm. home again every day, about leaving my house at different times every day, leaving the embassy at different times, the only thing I could conclude was that they had been watching him. He was very high profile. He was on TV all the time. Yeah. He was on the diplomatic circuit. But they must have been watching him, and they stumbled on me. And then they considered killing me, but decided I was too hard a target. So you, you, you were always watching your back, John, over there, and you must have been strapped at all times. I mean, had a piece on you at all times. Yeah, I was. I was very heavily armed the whole time I was in Greece. In fact, <laughs> I, I'm very religious, and I used to go to church every Sunday while I was there, but I would always carry a gun in. And every time <laughs> I, I walked into the church, I would ask God to forgive me for being armed in church. Well, hey, man, you know, <laughs> Gr Greek Orthodox, CIA Orthodox, always be strapped. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's funny, John. My my parents went on their honeymoon to Greece in 1984. Was that a was that a dangerous there. time to be in Greece? It was a very dangerous time to be in Greece. Um, the uh, the U.S. defense attaché, uh, uh, oh, his first name escapes me now. George George Santos uh, was assassinated there in 1984, and then I went to Greece on my honeymoon in 1988, and my first full day in Greece. Uh, William Nordine, the defense attaché, was assassinated. No kidding. Yeah, in fact, my, my wife, my now ex-wife, took a picture of me sitting on a park bench reading a newspaper with the headline, um, U.S. defense attaché assassinated. <laughs> Man, that, that, I, don't, I don't think my parents had any idea as newlyweds, you know, about that stuff that was going on in Greece in, in late 1984 after they got married. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, because most Americans... Didn't and most Americans would, you know, go to Athens, see all the main sites, right. which you can do in a couple of days. They're all in the same neighborhood, and then they head immediately for the for the islands. That's probably that's true. What most people do, and they just didn't pay attention to, you know, broader issues of of international terrorism. That's probably true. Now, now, fasting, uh, uh, you know, fast forwarding to another facet of your career, uh, we read that you were part of the charge to capture Abu Zubaydah. Can you can yeah. you speak to any any of that? Yeah. Um, starting in late January two thousand two, I was the uh, I was the chief of counterterrorism operations in Pakistan. And um, after being there for just a couple of weeks, we got word that Abu Zubaydah was somewhere in Pakistan. At the time, we thought Abu Zubaydah was the number three in Al Qaeda. It turned out that that turned out to be incorrect. He had never formally joined Al-Qaeda, but he was, he was the head of Al-Qaeda's uh, and the creator of Al-Qaeda's training camps in Afghanistan. Um, 
George Tennant described him one time as, as the hub of the wheel with all of the spokes going out from him. So we searched for about a month, and uh, to make a very long story short, we narrowed his uh, possible location down to 14 different sites. But we had never hit more than two sites simultaneously in, at a time before. So we flew in a large team from Washington, weapons, battering rams, ammo, night vision goggles, the whole nine yards. And, um, and we took down these 14 Al-Qaeda safe houses all at the same time, wow. 2 a.m. And uh, he happened to be in one of them, and, and we caught him. Right, he was he was like basically a meat slab on the back of a truck before he was identified by somebody, by right? the FBI, right? Well, no, we he had been shot uh, trying to uh, to get out of the house. He was shot by a Pakistani policeman with an AK-47 three times uh, in the groin, the thigh, and the stomach. And so when I finally got there, he was literally bleeding to death in the street. So. Um, I, I didn't know if it was him, because, honest to God, it didn't look anything like the pictures we had of him. Right. So, uh, uh, the analyst that we had in Islamabad told me to take a picture of his of his eye so we could run a, a retinal scan, but his eyes were rolled back in his head, so I, I couldn't do that. And they told me then to take a picture of his ear. I didn't know until that night that no two people on Earth have the same ears. Wow. So, I took a picture of his ear... I sent it back, and immediately they um, they identified him as Abu Zubaydah. So we threw him in the back of this filthy Toyota pickup truck, and we rushed him to the hospital. By now, it was almost 3 a.m., and um, the doctor patched him up well enough that we were able to put him on a helicopter and fly him to a military base. Wow, that's crazy. Do you, do you think there's anything to the allegations that he's complete, uh, completely uh, mentally fraught, or is he has he been no, under, has he been under so much duress? You know, I remember seeing the article uh, in uh, in Vanity Fair that was written, I think, by Ron Kessler, in which he said that uh, Abu Zubaydah was mentally retarded, he was insane. None of that was true. None of it was true. I found him to be very bright. Uh, I, th- I found him to be very artistic. And he was very logical in his thinking. And then Ali Sufan, the FBI agent who interviewed him at the secret site that we sent him to after Pakistan, um, said the same thing. He was very bright. That's interesting because the, the, the diaries that were found were allegedly from three different personas or, uh, you know. Yeah, see, but this, this is an ongoing thing. Uh, this is a disagreement that many of us who, who had known Abu Zubaydah um, uh, felt. I never, I never believed those were diaries. When I first saw them, they looked like doodle books or sketchbooks. He would write poetry. He would write, you know, an act of a play. He would write a letter to himself, you know, as a, as a younger man. Um, it was just sort of a personal... I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word diary because it wasn't really a diary. It was just a private, a book of private thoughts. Mm. But certainly not the work of a, of a lunatic. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. And, um, going, going off topic a little bit, um, in June of 2013, it says that you wrote an open letter, a letter from Laredo to Edward Snowden expressing support and just giving advice and saying, quote, the most important advice I can offer is do not under any circumstance cooperate with the FBI. What did you mean by that? Anytime you ever have any 
contact with the FBI. Stop what you're saying and tell the FBI agent I am represented by counsel. Please leave. Because they will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will do anything they can to pin something on you, whether you've done it or not. And let me give you an example. When I was with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a part of my job was to have lunch with foreign diplomats and exchange information on developments in the Middle East. I did this all the time. It was, like I say, a formal part of my job. One day, I was invited to lunch by a Japanese diplomat, and uh, he was he was the, the Middle East guy for the Japanese. So we would talk about the peace process, about Lebanese elections, about uh, violence in the Gulf, you know, security in Yemen, anything that happened to be in the news at the time. So one, one day after lunch, he said to me, so uh, what's next for you? And I said, oh, you know, I'm thinking of of uh, resigning. I told Senator Kerry I'd give him two years. It's been two and a half. I miss working for myself. I think I'm going to go back into business for myself again. Yeah. And he says, no, no, don't do that. I can give you money if you give me information. Really? He said, I said, you know how many times I've made that pitch? Shame <laughs> on you. I said, I'm going to go back and report this. What's the matter with you? I yeah. thought you had more respect for me than that. That's Bush League. Yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. It was Bush League. So I went back to work, and I went straight to the office of the Senate Security Officer, and I told him I was just pitched by a, by a foreign intelligence officer. So he told me to write it down as a memo, and I wrote it on... He had a standalone computer there, not hooked up to the Internet. I wrote it on that computer. He sent the memo to the FBI. A couple days later, he tells me the FBI is going to come up and interview me. I said, great. So they send these two young agents up. And they said, what we want you to do is call him back and invite him out to lunch Hmm. and try to get him to tell you exactly what information he wants and how much he's willing to pay for it. Wow. So they said they would be at the next table at the restaurant. And then they called me the morning of of the next lunch and said something came up. They can't be there, but go ahead and do it anyway. And, um, and then write them another memo. I had the lunch. I wrote a memo. They told me do it again. I did it a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, and I would write these memos to the FBI telling them what the guy had said. So finally the guy tells me, well, I'm being transferred to Cairo, I got promoted, I said, okay, congratulations, good luck in Cairo, never saw him again. Right. A year later, when we were receiving from the Justice Department information uh, from Discovery in my case, we saw that there never was a Japanese diplomat. He was an FBI agent pretending to be a Japanese diplomat, and he was trying to set me up on an espionage charge that would stick. They knew that they had, they had a shit case against me, wow. that I had not committed espionage. So they were trying to get me to take money from an ostensible foreign intelligence agent so they could really charge me with espionage and give me 30 years. So they were honeypotting you, basically. That's absolutely right. So that's why I told Ed Snowden, don't talk to the FBI. Wow. They will do anything at all to build a case against you. Whether you're innocent or guilty, it makes no difference. I mean, we see all the time how they set people up on terrorism charges. Mm. They create these terrorism Mm -hmm. conspiracies Mm. and then arrest a whole bunch of people and then go on the news 
and tell the American public how they're keeping us all we're, safe. We're keeping you safe. Yeah, we just thwarted yeah, a big exactly. terror attack. They're the ones making up these cases in the first place. They're the ones supplying the fertilizer bombs to the mentally handicapped exactly. uh, patsies. Yeah. Exactly. It, the, the, the alleged attack on, on the bridge in Cleveland. They approached those four morons yeah. and talked them into uh, plotting to blow up the Route 82 bridge. Uh, that's yeah, that's so crazy that's, stuff. That's why I told Ed Snowden, and, and I wrote him a private letter after that too. That was much longer, more detailed. Sure. And I said, not only will you never get a fair trial, at least in the Eastern District of Virginia, don't ever speak to the FBI. Well, good on you, John. Thank you for doing that because um, you know, in my eyes, you and Edward Snowden are heroes. You guys. Ah, oh, thank you. You guys that's are blow, you guys are blowing the whistle, have blown the whistle on things that need to come out. People need to know about this. The American, the average American citizen needs to put down Dancing with the Stars and check out what you guys are saying. <laughs> oh, you're so right. You are <laughs> yeah. so right. Another, you know, John, you you were um you did some time in Pakistan, from what I understand. I'm sorry. Can you say that again? You were stationed in Pakistan for some time during your yeah. Tenure. I was in Pakistan from January to May of 2002, and then again July and August 2002. Okay, uh, I don't know if you can shed any light on this, or this is also relating to the FBI, but a operation that involved some Pakistani weapon makers, including A.Q. Khan, who is known as the father of Pakistani weaponry, and a weapons dealer named R.G. Abbas, uh, was part of an FBI operation called Operation Diamondback. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not. I wish I was, because, you know... AQ Khan, at least to the CIA, has been has been target number two behind Osama bin Laden, right. uh, you know, since the nineties. Right, but, but basically, you know, what what part of that operation would be, you know, uh, Pakistani authorities who were involved, uh, maybe peripherally with 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 uh, sending some money to some of the nine eleven hijackers through uh, Omar Saeed Sheikh. Who's alleged to have been a British British asset and possibly an American asset? Are, are you familiar with him at all, or can you speak to that? You know, I, I don't know him. I'm sorry. I I, uh, I wish I could. I don't have any information. Basically, the 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 allegation is that a hundred thousand dollars was wired from a uh, Pakistani official uh, by the name of uh, Mahmoud Ahmed. Uh, to Muhammad Atta through the conduit of uh, Omar Saeed Sheikh. And on the morning of 9-11, interestingly enough, Senator Bob Graham and Representative Porter Goss were having breakfast uh, with General Ahmed, uh, who's accused by Indian intelligence and Indian press and Indian authorities of uh, having been involved in that wire transfer. You're not familiar with that at all? No, I'm sorry. I sure am not. Uh, that's fine. I just wanted to ask you about that. I, I you know, let, let me let me say one thing though, because really, at, at the heart of what you're saying is a, is a bigger issue. One of the things that that we haven't really looked at. When I say we, I mean we as, as a country, and certainly we as as you know as the media, the, at least the mainstream media, have never looked at the financial support that um, that Al Qaeda had in its early days. Right. I would posit that much of that support came from very wealthy Saudi, uh, Kuwaiti, Qatari, and Emirati businessmen. Um, and, of course, these countries are all supposed to be friends of ours. But I think much of al-Qaeda's money came from these wealthy Gulf businessmen. And they were 
not appropriately investigated. They were not adequately pursued. And I think we, we might have been able to really choke off al-Qaeda's funding early on if we had been willing to step on the toes of some of our allies. Well, John, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I wanted to ask you about, and I'm sure you've heard about it. Members of Congress have talked about it. Bob Graham has talked about it. The 28 redacted pages from the 9-11 report, yeah. which essentially deal, uh, according to Bob Graham, he can't go into total specifics, but essentially, as you said, we're talking about Saudi Arabia financing the attacks. This is a congressional yeah. report from O2. I'm sorry, say that part again? This is the congressional report, the joint oh, inquiry yeah. from 2002. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I don't know what's in those redacted pages, but I believe uh, Bob Graham. And I think Bob Graham has the country's best interest at heart. And if Bob Graham thinks that, uh, if Bob Graham thinks that there were Saudi businessmen, that there, that, I'm sorry. If, if Bob Graham thinks that there were Saudi businessmen, Financing Al Qaeda, I believe it. Well, he he talks about this summit in Malaysia that the CIA was privy to in the year two thousand with one of the hijackers, uh, Khalid Al Midar, uh -huh. uh, being being uh, basically you know uh, there was surveillance to one of the hijackers before he came into this country, and right. they, they knew he was at this summit, and the CIA and the FBI were not communicating with each other properly about this. Oh, that's, that's legendary. Yeah. The CIA and the FBI didn't cooperate at all before 9-11. I mean, institutionally, we, we even still hate each other. Right. Um, the FBI is constantly trying to get into CIA business overseas, and the FBI won't allow the CIA to do anything domestically as it relates to foreign nationals. So there's this, this cultural uh, divide between them. And I'll tell you another thing. One of the reasons why the relationship between the CIA and the FBI never worked is that the FBI is always trying to build a case against somebody, right? right? Whether there's a case to build or not. J. Edgar Hoover. The CIA doesn't care about any case. The CIA just wants to, to interrupt the next terrorist attack. You know, and the FBI, they, they want to go it. so plottingly slow because everything is evidence and everything is, you know, for court that nothing ends up getting done. That... That's true. I mean that that that, that sounds uh, that sounds about right from what I've heard about people uh, involved with both agencies. Now, John, you know what? let me give you another example too. I, I hope you don't mind my interrupting. No, but no, I, no, I go, please. I wrote this in my book. Um, the night that we caught up with Zabeda, we confiscated his cell phone, and about two hours after we caught him, that phone started ringing because word had gotten around the Al Qaeda community that we had gotten. Him. And so the phone is ringing, but we can't answer the phone because some brilliant FBI agent put it in an evidence bag and sealed it. So I wanted to know who was calling it yeah. because I wanted to trace the call and see if we could hit that place too. And I ended up going nose to nose with this FBI agent. And finally she told me, if you open that bag, I will arrest you and charge you with obstruction of justice. What? And so we were never able to trace those calls. Wow. Who she thinks she yep. is? J. Edgar Hoover? <laughs> she kind of looked like J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> I think J. Edgar Hoover had better women's fashion than she did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John, that's incredible, man. That That's so dysfunctional, though, man, of our, of our agencies. Completely dysfunctional. 
And, and you know, be way before 9-11, going back to the Clinton administration and certainly the Bush administration, they were told hands off with respect to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, you know, I never understood that. Uh, I, I always thought, I, I always frankly blamed the Bush administration, and, and more than that, specifically the Bush family. Yes. Because they had these irrationally close ties with the Saudi oh, royal yeah. family. Oh, they, they sure did. Including the Bin Ladens. Including the Bin Ladens. And, and don't get me wrong, I know a lot of Bin Ladens, and they're very good and decent people. There's a sure. lot of them. Sure. But, you know, we need, to, we need to put our own priorities first. And our own priorities included disrupting Al-Qaeda's next attack. Exactly. And you have we that... We stuff with the Saudis and we weren't. And you have that strand of Wahhabism, that really, really hardcore um, yes. Islam. Fundamental, yeah. Fundamentalist uh, Islam. And there's so many of those guys within the kingdom in Saudi Arabia, we don't even know their names. That's right. Well, their names are not on the news. You might know their names, John, or an analyst, a CIA analyst in the Riyadh desk might know their names, but we don't know their names. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the thing is that I've heard about that, though, that the radical Islam, um, we should treat that the way we treat radical Christianity, those who are members of the KKK, and not try and paint a broad brushstroke across the entire Arabic world. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, actually. Um, I, there, there were, I, I worked with Muslims in the, in the CIA, staff officers who were Muslims. Um, my boss, at one point in the 90s, um, uh, was a convert to Islam and remains one of my probably two or three best friends in the world. Uh, we can't paint Islam with this broad brush, but I don't think we are. I think we're looking specifically at this one fundamentalist strain that has spawned Al-Qaeda and associated groups, this Wahhabism. Uh, it, it just, it's not compatible with, um, with our own values. And, and, I, and <laughs> I say that trying really hard not to sound hypocritical. Because I've been criticizing our own so-called values uh, since I got out of prison. Well, I mean, exactly. But, uh, if we if so, we torture people, we're not any better than those we're calling terrorists. And, and this is a beef of mine. You're exactly right. I, I mentioned to a group of students that I spoke with via Skype the other day that um, the State Department is mandated by Congress with producing a human rights report on every country around the world with which we have diplomatic relations. So we go to these countries and we criticize them for not respecting human rights, and then you know, on the same day, we may have a CIA officer going to that country's uh, intelligence service and saying, hey, will you take this prisoner? And remember, don't torture him, but when he finally talks, give us a write-up of what he says. Well, we know that they're going to, you know, shock the guy's genitals mm -hmm. or, or waterboard him or pull his fingernails out. And, you know, we smile and wink and we pretend that it's not happening. At the same time, you go into the State Department's uh, Bureau of... Uh, uh, DRL, it's uh, Democracy, uh, Human Rights, and Labor. Uh, and right there on their website, uh, it says that, that as signatories to the uh, Universal uh, Convention on Human Rights, that, uh, that we respect human rights. And Article 5 says that no person shall be subjected to torture or to humiliating or demeaning uh, treatment. Well, that's a joke, yeah. because we do that all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I'm not even talking about, about what we do in secret prisons around the world, but what do our own local police departments do to citizens every day of the year? Oh. So to say, that, to say that we're this 
beacon of human rights, the shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan wanted us to all believe we were. It's just a sick joke. I I agree. It's hard to speak from an area of, um, you know, authority when we have this going on within our own borders and then we have all these black sites around the world in Thailand and Poland. Right. Um, and even in Afghanistan, the salt pit, which we, we heard about. Um, right. I don't know if you can talk about that at all, but I mean... Um, well, I was aware of the existence of the salt pit, sure. but I didn't, I didn't actually get anywhere near it until I was with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So when I was last in Afghanistan, 2000... When was that? 2009, I guess it was. Um, the military at Bagram Air Base was very excited to show us their new prison. Mm-hmm. So they, they gave us a tour... And, man, it was a nice prison. I mean, this prison would have been the envy of, of any warden here in the United States. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't want to see that prison. I wanted no. to see the salt pit. You wanted to see the black site. I wanted to see the black site. Zero and, um, and they, they wouldn't allow me to uh, to get anywhere near it. Now, John, that means, obviously, John Kerry knows about all this. He's, he's, he's privy to everything. Sure he is. Yeah. Sure. And uh, John Kerry, being Secretary of State... Um, is entitled to a, a PDD briefing every morning. That's the president. Right. Well, he's he's not very far in line to be president. No, no, not really. Something I, like fifth, I guess. Fifth, yeah. I want the John Kerry of 1971 who came back from Vietnam and yeah. spoke about the atrocities to the Senate and spoke truth to power. I want that oh, John Kerry. You know what? I'm sorry to say that John Kerry's long gone. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to wrap things up quickly, but, I mean, you work with him pretty closely when you were a, uh, you were an investigator on the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, or what was, your, what was your role? Yeah, I was the senior investigator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I was his intelligence advisor. Okay, so John Kerry had you on speed dial, basically. Yeah, I mean, I was one of his, I was probably the, let me think, one, two the third or fourth ranking person that he had. What, 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 was, what was Kerry like when the cameras weren't on him? I mean, is he a pretty normal dude, or is he just really... Yeah, this, just... this is probably going to sound crazy, and you may not even believe me, but he was a really delightful guy. He was, yeah. he was much looser uh, in private than he was in public. He was actually a fun guy to sit down and have a beer with. And when he asked for your opinion, it's because he really wanted your opinion. Right. Not necessarily that he would, that he would take it, but he really did want to hear it. He wanted your ideas. Yeah, he wanted your idea. <laughs> and, and and Mike and I up here, we worked on, we volunteered on John Kerry's uh, presidential campaign, New Hampshire primary, two thousand four, and we got to meet him quite a few times. And, and in my in my eighteen year old mind, there was a difference between John Kerry and George W. Bush. Yeah, there there was. But today, got, in my thirty year old, almost thirty year old mind, it's hard to find the difference. Well, I remember telling my wife right after I took that job, I said, boy, John Kerry's a lot less liberal than I thought. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he voted I for... to be very hawkish. He voted for the Iraq War. Um, he's skull yeah. and bones, just like his distant cousin Bush. Um, I mean, he was... He did investigate Oliver North and the Iran-Contra stuff back in the 80s. Sure. So he should know better, but he, he does come across as actually more hawkish than people realize. Yeah, he, he really is. Now, part of that was because he wanted more than anything else in the world to become Secretary of State. And so when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, really, our instructions were to do whatever the president told us to do. And it was because he didn't want to make any waves. 
He knew Hillary was going to leave after the first term, and right. he wanted to make sure that he was the guy replacing her. John, we're going to close out here shortly, but um, as a former CIA officer, uh, Foreign Relations Committee investigator, who do you like in 2016 for president? Well, you know, I wish I could vote, but now being a convicted bel- uh, felon, I'm, I'm not allowed to oh, vote. that's a so kick in the balls. Let me give you two answers to that question. I voted third party um, in, in my last uh, my last vote in 2012. Hell yeah, um, hell yeah. My wife yelled at me, and I said, you know what, a wasted vote is a vote for somebody you don't believe in. Hell yeah, were you like your old man Gary Johnson? I voted Gary Johnson. Fuck yeah, John. On my car. I knew you were my boy, man. If, if, if you, John, if you vote for the lesser of two evils, you're still voting for evil. Afterwards was very kind to me, too. He, he wrote a letter um, calling for me to be pardoned, which I, I greatly appreciate. Who did, Gary? Yeah, he was really great. John. Um, no, not John Kerry, Gary Johnson. No, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I was about to tell you, Gary Johnson and I are boys. I worked on his campaign up here. Oh, no kidding. Um, we're, we're boy, I, I love Gary Johnson. He, he's... Oh, I do too. I think the guy's great. I think he would have been a terrific president. And you know what? You would be director... <laughs> if I vote in 2016 in the Democratic primary, I think I would vote for Martin O'Malley. He was an huh? absolutely outstanding governor of Maryland. Sanders. And I think he's the only one that really cares about poor people. Yeah. And, um, and I trust him. He just seems like a trustworthy guy. Well, I'll tell you what, John. If Gary Johnson had got it in there, you would be director of CIA right now. <laughs> I would take it, too. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Gary's great. Uh, O'Malley's great. I, I, I'm flirting with Jim Webb right now. What do you think about Jim Webb? You know, I, Jim Webb was on our committee, and so I got to know him a little bit. He's um, he's very difficult to get along with. He's not a nice guy. <laughs> it doesn't, he's, he's not a good bright. guy, though. Uh, but he also was, uh, he was not much of a senator. He really didn't have any kind of legislative accomplishments to point to. He would just, you know, go up onto the floor of the house and give a pissed-off speech every once in a while and <laughs> wait for the now to come in. Well, what about the modern VA bill that he, that he authored? I mean, that's pretty that, significant. That was one area that he was really good on. Yeah. He was great on Veterans Affairs because he had been Secretary of the, what was it? The Navy. Navy. The Navy under Reagan for a year. Yeah. So that he took very, very seriously. But... Um, and, you know, I think he just didn't really like being a senator well, very much. He didn't like the ass-kissing aspect and the D.C. No. schmoozing and all that bullshit. Yeah, he wasn't no, into that. He didn't. He didn't like and, it. And that's kind of what I like about him, though, John. Right, because he's an outsider. I kind of like that he doesn't want to kiss ass and that he knows that he's kind of a badass. He was in Vietnam. You know, he's had to take life. He's seen life being taken around him. I mean, you know, he wouldn't... I don't think he would make lightly the decision going to war. I'll tell you, going into his office, uh, even in the in the ante room, in the conference room, in his private office, every inch of the wall is covered with awards from different veterans groups. They loved Jim Webb, and he loved them. Sure, rightly so, though, man. I hope he runs. John, I, I hope does too. I think we need a, a real exchange of ideas. In, yes, in a president's primary. No primary should be a coronation. Exactly. Or an anointment, absolutely. Exactly. John, I wanted to ask you before we go, this is Michael, I just have a, just as my own personal uh, interest here, uh, there, there, were, there was a memo that went out in the early 60s that uh, J. Edgar Hoover referred to George Bush of the CIA. Do you agree that George H.W. Bush was in the CIA way before he became director in 76? No. No, I, I've never heard that before. George George H. W. Bush, I know, was um, 
was in Congress for a little while, but he was very active in the family's oil business. Yeah. Um, I, I never Zapata. heard of him ever being in the CIA before he was the director. So you, you don't you don't think there's any credence to that he was maybe involved even even peripherally through Sabata drilling or any of his uh, dresser or front companies or anything like that? You know what? That's entirely possible, but I, I've never heard that though. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to ask you. Yeah, I mean, they're not just going to, like, talk about it. They're not going to be like, oh, hey, by the way, Poppy Bush did this, you know? Right, sure. Now, he did fit that, uh, he did fit that profile of the, of the Ivy League, you know, yeah. Eastern elite. Well, he had, it all, so, he, he had an intelligence web all around him that people he was connected to. Well, he was certainly friends with George DeMorenschild, who, who, who somehow mysteriously became friends with Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> that might be another episode. John, we're going we're gonna to end things here, man. I just I want to give you the last word. I want to thank you for your time and uh, anything you want to say to the listeners. Oh, thank you very much. You know, what can I say but, but stand up to the man, speak truth to power, don't be afraid of the consequences. You'll be able to sleep better at night. Love it. John Kiriakou. Beautiful. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. All right. And another episode of Jackman Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want more information, check out John Kiriakou on Google. You can find him on Twitter. And uh, do some research. Check him out. Very interesting guy. One of my heroes. So glad to have this interview. Thank you for listening.